0: If you've got a Bible at hand, I encourage you to turn to first Kings sixteen. And I'm beginning here at verse twenty-nine. Looking at this tonight under the title, One Man with One God. First and Second Kings should be considered as one book, because that's what it was originally. It was one book. And these books begin and end with a great focus on the city of Jerusalem. In the early chapters of 1 Kings, we read of Solomon building Jerusalem up and building that glorious temple of the Lord. There's a great emphasis on that. And at the end of 2 Kings, we read of Jerusalem then being attacked, defeated, and destroyed. And that included the destruction of Solomon's glorious temple. Now, sandwiched between those two sections on Jerusalem, we have the time of the kings, which were days of terrible apostasy, a period when God's people fell away from the truth. Now that was true of the smaller kingdom of Judah, which remained faithful to Solomon's family line, but even more true of the larger northern kingdom of Israel. These days of apostasy, though, were also the days of the prophets. Men sent from God to remind the people of his forgotten word. In the northern kingdom, which was the worst of the two kingdoms, the two most influential prophets were Elijah and Elisha. And tonight we begin the story of Elijah. But before we get to this great man of God, we need to focus, first of all, on the king of his day, this infamous character called Ahab. So, our first point tonight is the influences of darkness in verses 29 to 34. There are two verses which summarize what the Lord felt of King Ahab. This king would reign for 22 years, king of great influence, but what did the Lord think of him? First of all, Look there at verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Not a great testimony. And then looked halfway down, verse 33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, they had a mixture of good and bad kings as they went through, but this northern kingdom of Israel, all the kings were wicked, all the kings were evil. And Ahab here gets a distinction of being the worst of the whole lot. So, let's consider four influences which were significant in creating such an evil man and such an evil kingdom of his day. The first we see is Omri, the powerful father, mentioned here in verse 29. It says there, in the 30th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So, his father is mentioned twice there for emphasis. Now, Omri was not from a royal line. He was the commander in the army of the king of Israel called Elah. He rose to king when, first of all, Simri, who was a commander over half the chariots, decided to depose Elah, and then Omri deposed Simri after just seven days. Now, Omri established what is called the Omride dynasty. This is a dynasty which would last for 50 years. It would include the reign of Omri, his son Ahab, Ahab's two sons and daughter, Ahazah, Jehoram, and Aphaliah, until the family would finally be wiped out by a man called Jehu as part of God's judgment. Now, the Umri dynasty, although it was quite short, it only lasted about 50 years, it was very significant in Israel's history. Archaeology has shown that this was a a period of the building of great palaces for splendor and comfort, a period of building of great fortresses for security, and the building of great roads for commerce. Omri, he bought the land on a hill which he formed in the city of Samaria, and there he built an absolutely amazing palace, a vast palace to be part of his capital city. It was a time when the armies of Israel knew a lot of success. They were able to indeed suppress many of the enemies around them, and they were a significant superpower in the world at that time. Omri was a very capable man. He came from a humble background, and he rose to be king. There was a lot about him, which was good. He had a very powerful influence. But We read in verse 25, what is God's summary of him? Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. So, up until his time, he was the worst king of all in his wickedness, in his sin, and he would only be succeeded by his evil son. Now, this reminds us of the tremendous influence that fathers have upon their children for good or for evil. And so much that Ahab was, was because of his father. And here's a tremendous challenge for those of us who are fathers here. Edwin Burke says, All that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that is true in society. It's true in our own homes. And so, if we're going to be good fathers, we need to be intentional. In the leadership and the influence that we have on our children. I think also we take from this a challenge for children about recognizing the influence that our parents have had on us, whether for good or for evil. No parents are perfect. And sometimes in people in their Christian lives, they are dogged for many years because of influences that have come from their parents. There's traits in their life which have come naturally into their life, which just really hinders them in the Christian life. It sure reminds us we need to put everything through the sieve of God's Word. We need to think of the influence of others. Thank God for the influences that are good, and be watchful for influences that indeed are harmful. So there we have Omri, the powerful father, the first influence here in Ahab. And then we have, secondly, Jeroboam, the important predecessor, mentioned in verse 31. It says there, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, we have already mentioned with the kids about Jeroboam, how he set up those two golden bulls at Bethel and Dan. His goal was not to worship a false god. That was not his intention. His goal was to use these images to help in the worship of the true God. That was his motivation. But this invention for worship was something that was abhorred by God, and constantly through the book of Kings, it speaks about these kings who follow the sins of Jeroboam, particularly focusing on these images. For example, in speaking of Ahab's father, Omri, back in verse 26, it says this, For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Jeroboam serves as a warning that the influence of wickedness, the influence of sin, can last for generations. And you know, it's a terrifying thought that what we do will have influence on our children. But the fact is, what we do can have an influence not just on our children, but our grandchildren, and the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. So, it just causes us to think about how we live. It has such a tremendous significance and importance for now but also for the future. Jeroboam set the trend, which all the kings after him would follow. What he did in worship was his own intentions, his own invention. He decided to worship the Lord according to his own ideas. God's word must always control worship. We cannot decide how to worship God. We cannot invent new ways of worshiping the Lord. I think one of the things as we think of these images, which these golden images, which were there as an aid to worship initially, it r- serves as a warning of how the, the physical and the visible can take over from the spiritual and the invisible. And we need to be careful because things that we see can dominate in our worship. When, in fact, what should dominate in our worship is the invisible, the God who is unseen. That is why, for example, after the the Reformation, Protestant meeting houses, particularly of the Presbyterian tradition, were, were very, very simple. They wanted nothing to distract, And that doesn't mean we can't do things pretty. But we need to be careful that the visible, the physical, doesn't lead us away from the spiritual and the invisible. And we could apply this, and I could do a whole sermon on this, of how that is a danger in so many ways. That which is seen should not distract us from the one who is unseen. So we have Jeroboam, the important predecessor. And then thirdly, we have Jezebel, the manipulating wife. Let's read about her, verse 31. It says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built at Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. It's another false goddess. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab has gone further and further downhill in his sinful activity. He has moved from the, the wrong worship of the true God and following the ways of Jeroboam to now the worship of these false gods in Baal and in Asherah. And it appears here, he was very energetic. He built a temple to Baal. He set up an Asherah. So, he was very involved in this. But remember this, Ahab still wanted to retain the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel. We can see that in the names that he would give to his children all the names of his children had the name Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel in it. So it wasn't as if he was deciding to turn his back on the true God, at least he thought he wasn't. Ahab was happy to allow the Lord to have a place in his life, but the Lord was not going to be the king, the sovereign over every area of Ahab's life. And those are terms which are never acceptable to the Lord. The Lord doesn't want a a little place in our lives. He doesn't want a little area once a week where we come and give him homage and then do not let him control every other area of our lives. That is not what God wants. And if we think that we can get away with that, we are following the ways of the most evil king of Israel, Who would give God a place, a little place in his life, but fill the rest of his life with so much that was wrong and sinful. There's a good question for us to ask. Why did Ahab marry Jezebel? Why did he go down this dark road of apostasy? Why did he take up with this evil woman Well, I think the answer is he was following the common practice of his day, where kingdoms were promoted through political alliances that were made through marriages. But what Ahab forgot was that he was the king of Israel, he was the leader of God's people. And God's people do not follow the ways of the nations around them, God's people do not follow the ways of the world, God's people follow the ways of the Lord which forbid such marriages. It's sad, but he had forgotten who he was as someone who belonged to the people of God and just followed the ways around him. And then the fourth thing about his evil influences was God's Word, the forgotten truth. Look at verse 34. This is a Appears maybe as a curious verse, we aside, that's put in here. It says, In his days, that's in the days of Ahab, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this curious little verse, which we might, at least you think is a little aside, is not important, in reality, it gets the very heart of the whole problem of the nation of Israel at this time. Do you remember after the great victory over Jericho, the first city that was conquered as the children of Israel came into the promised land? These are the words that we read about in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua laid an oath on them, at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates." Now, there's a reason behind this. There's something very important here. Jericho, as I say, it was the first city that was taken in the promised land. And do you remember at that time, the people were not to take anything from the city. And we remember the sin of Achan and how that led to the defeat of God's people when he took something for himself. But this was to be a city totally devoted to the Lord. It was a city whose rubble was to be a testimony of two things. A testimony of God's justice in punishing the wicked Canaanites who lived in that city. And it was a testimony of God's grace bringing His people into the promised land. And that is why this curse was put that this city should never be rebuilt. It was to lie in rubble as a testimony of God's justice and grace. But this man, Hiel, and probably under the direction of Ahab, he decides to rebuild the city anyway. What was the result? As indeed Joshua had warned, his firstborn was killed at the beginning of the project, and his youngest, Was killed at the end of the project. God's curse was real. You see, this was the problem. Here were a people who didn't care about God's justice, who didn't care about God's grace, a people who totally rejected God's word. God's word was scorned, God's word was ignored. But God's word was fulfilled in the death of Heel's two sons. But that was the nature of the kingdom of Israel. A place which scorned the thought of God's justice, which scorned God's grace, because it scorned God's word. So here are the four evil influences that led Israel into such days of darkness. Let's secondly, I'll encourage you, there's only two points tonight, not three. Secondly, let's think about the messenger of light as we come here to chapter 17. Let's read that first verse. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word in the darkness of the days of the sin of king ahab god's light comes through one man and it's very interesting here so little is actually said about elijah about his background who his parents were and i think it's actually a w pink likens him to melchizedek who came out of nowhere and Elijah came out of nowhere. In the end, Elijah never died, was taken that chariot of fire to heaven. And A.W. Pink says, in many ways, Elijah is to be like a type of Christ, picturing of the one who brings truth into the darkness and the, the sin and the evil that's in the world around us. And here we see hope in days of darkness and hope in days of apostasy. Now, let's think about four quick things about this servant. First of all, we have Elijah, a name of great challenge. Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh, the great name by which God revealed himself to Moses. Sometimes said, Jehovah, I am who I am. And with that name, my God is Yahweh, it couldn't be a more direct confrontation against the godlessness and the sin in which Ahab was leading the people in his death. Now, some of the commentators debate, was this actually Elijah's original name? Maybe it was a name he just took upon himself for this important task to show he was confronting, indeed, this, these false gods. I prefer that what some commentators think that it was, his name came from his parents who were a godly remnant in these days of darkness. Roger Ellsworth, who's written a very good book on Elijah, says this, It is not necessary for us to name our sons Elijah, but it must be our desire to see each of our children look at the idols of this age in the face and say, My God is Jehovah. Isn't that what we want for our children? Isn't that what should be true of us? We look at the idols of today and we say, my God is Jehovah. My God is the Lord. My God is the one true God. That is who I follow. And we see something here very important. In the name of Elijah, God is not timid. In challenging the sin and the wickedness of this world. And God expects His people not to be timid, but to be involved in challenging the sin and the wickedness of this world. So, Elijah, a name of great challenge. But secondly, fellowship, a place of great power. It says in this verse, Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand. Elijah's message to Ahab, it didn't come out of a vacuum, but came out of a period of time that he spent in the presence of God, in fellowship with the living God. Some of the commentators actually think he actually spent six months of the drought before he eventually goes to Ahab, and over those six months, he was spending that time getting strengthened by the Lord. To stand against a world of evil, to stand with God in public, we must be men and women who stand with God in the private place. Some commentators discuss how this intervention came after spending time focusing on such passages as Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, which warned that drought would come when people turned away from the living God. There's no doubt about it. Elijah was a man who entered the presence of Ahab from coming from the presence of the living God. Thirdly, we see here the rain a fitting test. Why did God choose to punish Ahab and the people of Israel with a drought? Well, an important reason was that Baal was believed to be the God of weather and the God of fertility. He was believed to be the God who caused the plants to grow. And by stopping the rain, the Lord, Yahweh, was showing that he, not Baal, he is the one true God. He is the Lord who is God over every area of life. He is the one who is sovereign over everything. And so, this drought was actually a contest between the true God and the false God, Baal. It's similar to the plagues of Egypt and If you think of the ten plagues of Egypt, behind most of those plagues are the false gods of Egypt. And so those plagues back in Moses' day was again a contest showing who the one true God is. I love that story in 1 Samuel about the Ark of the Covenant being taken into the the temple of the Philistine God Dagon. And they come in the next morning, and Dagon is flat in his face. They put him up again. They come in the next day. He's flattened his face and he's now in his arms and is all broken off. Our God has a sense of humor. But our God also has a passion. That this world knows that there is one true God. The creator of the universe. The father of Jesus Christ. The sovereign Lord who rules over all. We need to be aware that there are false gods in our day which are seeking to claim areas of our lives, the way that Baal was seeking to claim lordship over fertility and the weather. There are false gods today who want to claim areas of society. There's the false god of equality who wants to claim marriage for himself. There's a false God of comfort who wants to take God's people away from faithfulness and worship and Bible study and prayer, to take God's people away from faithfulness in service. We need to realize, you know, that there are maybe not the bales that people bow down to, But there are many false gods that people worship, not just out there, but there are many false gods that we at times worship even within our own lives. Every time we follow our own thinking, every time we follow the thinking of the world, rather than the Word of God, we're yielding to a false god. This brings us to our final point, which is God's Word, the controlling truth. Do you notice what Elijah says at the end of this verse? There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my Word. It will not rain until my Word says so. Now, remember, these are not just the words of a man. These are the words of the prophet of God. And the purpose of this drought, lasting until God's prophet would speak again, was to restore and to exalt God's Word to the very heart of the nation again. Now, remember, The darkness over the land, the the idolatry, the false worship, it ultimately came from God's word being set aside for the thinking of man. God's plan to restore, God's plan to take people out of the darkness was to get his word through the prophet to the very center of the nation's life again. That is why when it comes to the darkness within our society, when it comes to the darkness within our nation, we can be critical of our politicians. But we have to realize the great responsibility to bring the truth, to share the truth, To bring the light of the gospel is not that of politicians, but is the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ. It is the responsibility of every believer of Jesus Christ. So we need to be people who are determined to be like Elijah. You remember what James says? He says Elijah was no superman. Elijah was a man of like nature as us. And isn't that wonderful? The God who would use Elijah to stand against King Ahab and the evil of Israel is the same God that can use weak old you, weak me, in these wicked and evil days. God can use you in the classrooms, in the offices, in the factories, in the streets, in the roads, around our community. But we need to be like Elijah. We need to be people whose greatest cry is that my God is Jehovah. My God is the Lord. We need to dwell within the presence of God. We need to let God's Word dwell rich within us so that then naturally out of our lives will flow that truth to a dark and needy world around us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for those lovely words from James that Elijah, who was a man with a like nature as us. And as we will go on in the story of Elijah, we will see that he was far from perfect. He had his weaknesses. He had his frailties. He had his discouragements. But, Lord, you used him perfectly. Oh, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a desire to be used by you, Give us a burden for the darkness that is around us. Give us a concern for so many who have turned away from the living God. And help us to believe that you can use us. You can use us as individuals. You can use us as churches in these dark days. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Come in power. Revive us as churches, oh God, we pray.